Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's show, Influence Through Verbal Commitments, Part 1 of 2. In today's cast, we begin our discussion on describing how to influence others by asking for verbal commitments. Here we go. Increasingly in our consulting practice, we're talking to managers and they tell us that they have an increasing problem, which is that more and more folks on their team are not reporting directly to them, right? They don't have any role power over the person. They're not writing their review. They're kind of in this matrix-like environment. So these like matrix-like moments are increasing. And they ask us, well, how do I influence someone in our organization when I don't have role power over them? How do I get them to do what I need them to do, right? Yeah, I want to be the boss all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's frustrating for folks. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it's true. And, you know, it's just going to happen more and more and more. And um, we've got to be able to address it. And in our experience, most managers don't handle it well. When, you know, when we don't have role power, we get we, we spend so much time worrying about not having role power. We don't think, is what I'm doing working? Which I would argue with for most managers, the answer is no, it's not. And then if it's not working, how do I change it? Which again, because they don't know, they don't ask themselves whether it's working other than they know they're frustrated by it. Um, They're not going to ask, well, how do I change it? Right. And there's no magic bullet, right? There's not do these five steps and you absolutely will get everybody you want to do everything you want to do. Right. But we can increase the probability. Well, you know, yeah, there is no magic bullet, but, but, but I think when managers and executives tell us that, well, this isn't a magic bullet, it doesn't actually work all the time. I look and I, you know, we say to them, yeah, neither does role power, right? You tell somebody to do something, you're entitled to do that as a function of your role. They work directly for you and they don't do it. Right. Which goes back to our fundamental point about the value of of relationships. Right. If if you have a good relationship with your folks and you do have role power, when you use the role power, the role power and the relationship have an additive, uh, you know, quantity and even a multiplicative quality that causes your directs to do what you ask or do what you say. So, yeah. So, look, we've got a series of steps. We actually have eight points we want to make. Our outline is. Regardless, number one, regardless of whether you're in a matrix or not, sometimes you can't use role power, okay? We, we just need to be clear about that. Um, we want to set this thing up right. That said, number two is, on the other hand, we don't necessarily advocate role power. We think it, role power is way overrated. It's definitely in use by first-line managers. It's necessary at times, and the only time we should use it is when it's necessary, as opposed to when we have other potential ways of influencing somebody. Uh, Our recommendation is number three, first, don't make more than a brief case for why you need somebody to help you. If I'm asking a a peer of mine or somebody perhaps a level down in the organization for something to support me or a project I'm working on, or uh, it's a project team or not, it's just a one-off ask. We find that too many managers spend too long describing why this is important to them and it's a waste of time. Number four, The simple way to address this is to ask other professionals for a specific commitment. Ask them, will you do this? It's as simple as that. Because if they say no, you may still yet convince them. But if you don't ask, you have no way to communicate back with them regarding their failure if you assume they're going to and then they don't. And then they say to you, well, I I 
misunderstood apparently. I didn't realize you had to have it by now, right? If for some reason you ask for commitment and you get it, but timing or details are not what you want, um, you negotiate. You suggest a, a different date or a different time. You you ask for, um, you know, c- could you do it on this date versus that date? We also recommend, this is manager tools, so we recommend be nice. Number six, be nice. Don't get mad. Don't imply threats. Doesn't work in our experience. Number seven, say thank you. That works. And number eight, here's where it gets interesting. People probably think we're rolling over. Number eight, hold them accountable. When we ask for a verbal commitment and people give us a verbal commitment, it's reasonable for us to hold other people accountable for what we ask for. So when I ask Mike, even though he doesn't work for me, will you please do this? And he says, yes. And I say, when can you have it by? And he says, next Thursday. Next Thursday, I go ask him if I haven't gotten it yet. Hey, um, what's the status of, of you know Project X that you promised me? And we also recommend considering giving them peer feedback. And, and if they haven't done it, asking for a new deadline, which essentially is another commitment. And now we're back in the cycle again. Good. It's not that hard. Yeah, sounds pretty simple. So mm-hmm. let's get right into it. Let's, let's talk about role power a bit. I think a lot of managers have a mistaken idea of how effective role power is, first. And secondly, given the increasing nature of uh, our frequency of matrix-like organizations or arrangements, a reliance on role power is problematic, to say the least. Yeah, I you know... I, I think managers often want silver bullets. I understand it. I, I want it too sometimes. There are no silver bullets in management. I think the ultimate silver bullet is role power. And I think the, the fact that managers want more role power leads them to often want a silver bullet. Yeah. If I was CEO, I'd have ultimate role power and everybody yeah. would do exactly what I'd like. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why then no. do CEOs tell us that I feel like I'm running an oatmeal, I can't get the things done I want to get done? Right. So maybe role power is having not role power is not a royal fiat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Look, you know, one of the reasons we're opposed to the idea of matrices is even those managers with role power want more and things don't get done. So look, we're generally opposed to matrices, but it doesn't matter. Even if you do have role power, there are times when you're gonna have to use influence rather than role power in order to get what you want. And in those organizations that are vertical, that do require influencing skills, that do require you to get work from other people who don't work for you, if you try to force them, two things will happen. You won't get what you want, and you will lose executive and professional credibility and destroy your career over time. I had a manager once say, well, I'm a level 12 and he's a level 10, so he has to do what I want, even though this person's way across the organization. I said, you know, that's not how role power work. Role power is about the people who report to you. He says, no, 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 no. It's about level within the company. I said, you know, th- this is not the military. It's not, you know, you can't give lawful orders. Um, he says, well, it should be. <laughs> Which, of course, reminded me that should is a really bad word when it comes to management. There are times when you'll actually have people working for you or assigned to you or given to you for a short period of time, and they actually outrank you in terms of levels in the organization. But the fact is, the world is changing, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. And and to be an effective manager today, we've got to learn how to get things done when we don't have role power. Simple as that. It might be useful to review for folks the, the various sources of power that exist in organizations today and compare and contrast them just a bit. Yeah, the, yeah, there are three. Role power, which is what the organization formally grants you over those who report to you 
and it's limited to those people and the people in their organizations. Expertise power, the ability to influence others by being at least thought smarter or more knowledgeable than others. And relationship power, which is the ability to influence others based on a personal or professional relationship. And that's usually developed over time. And, and again, too many managers want to or actually do rely far too much on role power. And there's a reason why they do. It works. As, as long as you see yourself as requiring compliance, um, the way I like to describe it is if you're attempting to avoid failure, in other words, I need this thing done. And if I don't get it done, I'm going to get in trouble. Then the getting it done thing is avoiding the getting in trouble. If you're attempting to avoid failure as opposed to seeking success, role power works, assuming that the raw talent you have is um, exceptional and there are significant opportunities. You can get away with doing nothing but role power because there's a future carrot hanging in front of the people who work for you that's powerful enough to allow them to tolerate your over-reliance on role power. Right. Well, and the more you use it, the less effective it is, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, it, but what happens is, is young managers rely too much on role power. You know, they get promoted from being the peer of the person that they're now managing. They feel like people are pushing back. They're stunned because they would never do that themselves. And so they begin to rely on role power. They never develop a relationship with those people as a boss. And then when they need the relationship, it doesn't exist. And what's more, if you haven't developed a relationship, if you haven't worked on those skills, just by literally exercising them, you literally don't know how to act as if uh, there is some sort of relationship and then be able to persuade others to work with you on something. And it's just a dangerous place to be in today's world where there are going to be more teams and more attenuated relationships that that power and, and, and role are going to be difficult to surmise or determine. And so despite the fact that it is manager tools, and we do know that managers have role power over the people that report to them, we believe the most powerful way to influence an organization, that is to say, the most powerful way to persuade others to get things done is relationship power. And that means, gee whiz, one-on-ones. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's another argument that suggests relationship power is a place to focus for managers, and that role power is hard to gain. It takes time, right? You mm-hmm. got to get promoted, et cetera. So you can't change that immediately. If you're a manager of a 30 person organization, it's not like you can do something tomorrow and all of a sudden have role power over a hundred people. It takes time. Expertise power. One could argue that takes even longer. Right. right so you can't, exactly. you can't change the dial. You can't move that dial very quickly. On the other hand, relationship power, given that it's so infrequently used and undervalued completely, relationship power is something that you can influence today. Yeah. You, you don't need anything from your boss. You don't need anything from others other than a relationship. And your ability to do that is is completely in your control. Yep. Yeah. There there are people who are geniuses and, and considered experts and wonder why these really friendly, outgoing people can be at the same level of them as an organization. They're like, God, why would anybody trust or believe him or her? You know, they're always just shaking hands and being nice to people and you know, going to basketball games, going to football games, way too much of a marketer, doesn't know the business. And yet somehow they do a lot of business. And that's unfortunately why I related to why sometimes CIOs don't don't become CEOs, right? It's why technology folks wonder why it is sales and marketing people often get jobs where the technology person reports to the sales and marketing person. That's an extreme case, folks. Don't, don't. We're giving you an example of this 
squared or, or cubed. But look, it, it's really simple. Rule power is the weakest option for persuading other people. And we even say, even when rule power is present, available, and reasonable to use, we don't recommend you use it if, in fact, you can use relationship power to get done what you need to get done. Okay. And frankly, we don't advocate using role power very often. We, we follow the rule that role power is best relegated to those times and places where processes specifically call for it. In other words, terminating somebody, getting somebody promoted, writing their review, and so on. And the reason why is because role power creates what I like to call compliant energy. At best, what it creates is compliant energy. If you order me to do something, I'll do it, but I will simply do it to a minimum standard in most cases or in many cases. Relationship power allows for at least compliant energy, and it's the only form of influence that at best creates what I would call transformational energy, which is the really real desire to not just do the task, but to really make the task done exceptionally well and over-contribute to a given success. So the, the point of this is, is you're going to have to have relationships with other people. You're going to have to influence other people that you don't have power over. And most managers' reliance on royal power is efficient in the short room, of short run, ineffective in the long run. And nowadays, with the organization the way they are, it's also inefficient in the long run because you literally don't develop the relationship skills you need to be able to reach across the organization. Um, you don't have to be a marketer. You don't have to be a salesperson. You don't have to be shaking everybody's hand. You need to develop relationships or lacking any strong relationship, know how to influence another person who doesn't work for you and too many young managers. And now we're seeing mid-level managers not knowing how to do it. And they blame the organization for the lack of rule power they have. And unfortunately, that's not going to go away. Yeah. I think there's some unique challenges though when managers kind of start to rely on rule power, right? They, they struggle with that a bit when they don't have rule power. And they do one of a couple of things, right? Either they spend a great deal of time trying to convince the person they're trying to persuade with like with tons of information about why they're asking, why it's the right thing, why it needs to be done, et cetera, right? And particularly in, not to pick on technology organization, but technology organizations who have a bunch of high Cs who like data anyways, right. they, just go, they just go way overboard, right? So they do yeah. that, or they just assume that the other person understands what their situation is, and they say very little or, frankly, nothing at all to be convincing. Yeah. And, and yeah, when you said high Cs and they have a whole bunch of data, the, the, one of the dangers, there are dangers with all behavioral tendencies, but the problem with perfectionists are those people who prefer data um, and process when you get into relationship or influencing other people is when you look at your pile of data, the outcome is obvious. Well, it's compelling. It's rational. <laughs> the data and the outcome are inseparable. Yeah. And of course, all the people that think that way also would acknowledge if they were thinking theoretically about data and outcomes that they are fundamentally different that the moment you imply an outcome again you guarantee an outcome from the data you are no longer talking about the data you're making a value judgment right and so what happens is we try to persuade someone else with our mountain of data because the outcome is obvious to us and we become enamored of the outcome and we consider it obvious when in fact, the data, if in fact we're trying to, we're trying to convince someone else who's like us, who's a perfectionist, 
rather than selling the outcome, we ought to be sharing the data and letting them draw their own conclusions. If they draw their own conclusion the same as us, okay, that's a home run. Right. But far too many managers who were formerly engineers or technical people just link the two together, the outcome and the data. And that's essentially a, a fallacy of. Well, yeah, that, well, that's a problem of us high C's like, like I am. But you high D, high I guys have your own issues too, right? Oh, yeah, you just, absolutely. You just assume we get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, there there are people who, yeah, the, um, I assume you get it. And and I don't, you know, look, hey, I need this. Um, you're a good guy. I need this. And it's totally, I mean, to me, I don't need a whole lot of data. It's just obvious to me, the connection between me being successful and the organization being successful. And why wouldn't you think that? And D's and I's tend to project onto other people the same emotional state, the same outcomes, just because they that's the way they see themselves. They see other people as agreeing with them. And they be, they're able to dominate other people. They're able to influence other people. And what happens is, here, here's what happens. We assume that somebody's going to do something. We don't even ask. We just tell them briefly uh, our situation. And we assume that that means they come to the same outcome as us. And we didn't need to talk any further. Well, the problem with that is when you go back to them and say, hey, where are you on that? They're like, what? Well, I thought you were going to work on that for me. Well, no. I'm sorry. I have other stuff going on. Right. Right. And then, and then, and then unfortunately, you know, now we're angry. Right. And we feel hurt if we're an I, or we feel confronted if we're a D. And it's just not an effective way to be. Yeah. So we're all hurting. So the, the high C, high S approach doesn't work regularly all the time. And neither does a high D, high I. So I, I guess we just give up. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I mentioned before about the high season and about how they see it. When we have lots of data, when we make a long case to someone, the data are always what makes sense to us, right? And, you know, Benjamin Franklin once said something. It's one of my favorite quotes when it comes to persuasion. And by the way, folks, I don't say this very often, but let me be clear. All communication is persuasion. And because we're about relationships, because we believe relationship power is the $64,000 answer when it comes to management, not role power. This from two former army officers, by the way. We believe that all managerial communications are essentially persuasive communications, particularly when it comes to those people in your organization. But Ben Franklin said, would you persuade, speak of interest and not of reason? Trying to convince somebody of the value of their work to you is a total lesson in futility unless you have a brilliantly close relationship, right? Just because something makes sense to us doesn't mean that it either makes sense to them or they understand why it makes sense to us. Don't persuade people based on how logical your case is because the logic will escape them because it's your logic. Rather, ask yourself, how can I appeal to what interests them? And rather than thinking my reason, think their interest. And that's the way to persuade. Now, look, the answer is, first of all, be brief. People don't want to sit and listen to you give a long dissertation for why this makes sense to you. They don't. The why of our request is probably going to be of very little importance to the person that we're asking. Now, look, on the other hand, leaving it out completely and, and asking them to assume the why isn't, doesn't make sense professionally either. As long as we understand, we need to share the why, but we have to understand that the why of our need is not persuasive. 
that's the key point here. The why of our need is not persuasive to another person because it's not their why. So spending more time talking about the why is, if it's not persuasive, is wasteful and frankly, probably hurtful to a, a delicate relationship, one you haven't developed. Look, basically you ask for help and you share a couple, maybe three, maybe five at the most sentences about the why in order to get past the rationale and to get to the, the chance to, as, as we'll talk about in a minute, ask for commitment. It might sound like this. In terms of the why, I'd say, hey, Terry, I need your help. I'm developing a new product and I need some help with evaluation. We have some tight deadlines and I need some outside perspective to make sure my assumptions aren't way off. That's about all of the detail, all the background I need to share in this situation. And again, the reason I don't give chapter and verse is because my chapter and verse is not persuasive to the person I'm asking. They see an ask as an intrusion. More data about how it benefits me, it doesn't make it any less of an intrusion. Okay, so you said earlier that, you know, we believe management is, management managerial communications is about persuasion, right? You said that making the briefcase is not persuasive, right? It's not, so yeah. Brief, it's not persuasive. So where is the persuasion if managerial communications is about persuasion? Where, where does that happen? Yeah, the persuasive part of any ask, any request for help, is the ask itself. Lacking an ask lacks persuasion. It's a case, but it's not persuasive because it's your case. Okay. We recommend you specifically ask your associate what you want them to do and what you need them to do. We recommend further that you ask when they can do it rather than imposing your own deadline. Right. So it, it's really simple. The way to persuade others to help you when you don't have role power is not to convince them with data, not to convince them with your need. And frankly, not to ask them for a favor, which is a form of leaning on the, the personal side of the relationship, but rather by simply asking them for help. Okay. It really is the ask itself, the question that matters. Look, think about the manager who doesn't ask, but spends a long time explaining why the project, this particular thing that they want makes sense um, to them, big picture, or whatever. Yeah, to themselves, right? Yeah. What, what does the listener hear? Either they hear something like, hey, I'm afraid to actually ask if you'll do it because that implies weakness on my part. And the other thing they see is I, I run the risk of being told no if I ask you. Or the other thing they hear, if they get a long rationale for the why, you know, you ought to be smart enough to figure out that I know what's best for you. But look, I wish I had known this when I was 20, 22, 25. I think I learned it in sales. When we don't have any role power and we need others people, other people's help, we are in a position of weakness, right? We are. And they know it. <laughs> and Yeah, they know it. And anything we do that doesn't acknowledge our weakness is not just an admission of weakness in the part of the other person. It's an attempt to cover it up as well, two strikes. Counterintuitively, admitting our weakness by asking a question is seen as a sign of strength. It sounds corny, but only the strong are open about their weaknesses. So we ask. We literally admit our weakness by asking a question. Because, of course, how, how is asking a question admitting a weakness? Because now the other person has control and they have the right to say no. 
right? And then that proves that you don't have the ability to compel. But the fact is, both sides of the party knew you didn't have the ability to compel, and you don't want to admit it, which of course, as I said, as I just said, makes it worse. You're trying to cover it up. And so you're trying to make a compelling case, which is just your case, but it's not their case because you're speaking of your interest rather than, or your reason rather than of their interest. So here's how it might sound. sound. Terry, I need your help. I'm developing a new product and I need some help with the valuation. We have some tight deadlines and I need some outside perspective to make sure my assumptions aren't way off. Will you please review this presentation for accuracy and the right level of detail? Now, since we're admitting our weakness, because that's the way to be strong when you're actually weak, when it comes to deadlines, we ask another question. We say, great, thank you. When can you get it done? Right? Literally two questions. One, can you or will you? And the other one is, what deadline will you be willing to share with me regarding fitting this work into your schedule, which I literally don't know? Okay. I'm no mathematician, but I know probabilities a little bit. So if I ask two questions, doesn't that square the chance of failure? The fact that they're going to say no to either one of two questions? Yeah, exactly. It does square it, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 That's cool. I, I actually have some math in my in my podcast. Wow. I mean, in terms of the probability, it absolutely appears that way. But here's what's funny. Once somebody has committed verbally, they've said yes, to doing the work we needed to do. And by the way, if they if they say no, we don't ask the second question. Oh, no. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So good, yeah. good things for pointing that out. Right. But once somebody's committed verbally to doing the work we needed to do, and let me be clear, once they've made a verbal commitment to somebody else, which is to say us in this situation, they now feel obligated to meet their obligation professionally which means in a timely manner. Folks, the act of verbal commit, verbally committing to something is a powerful motivator for people. You could read Cialdini's book, Influence, which is on the website. Great book. Um, that motivation carries over in their willingness to be timely with their work. Now, we're not saying that they're going to do it for you the next 15 minutes and say, you're such a great influencer. I simply can't. I can't resist your powers. What else would you like me to do? Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll finish this up next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long. 